This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Epping Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. Um, so this week, uh, this week, and I guess this month, this year, a lot has been happening in the world, and I find myself just like constantly thinking about different things that like upset me or that like worry me and make me feel, you know, like falling into despair. Um, but also sometimes things that also give me hope and things that inspire me. And so rather than thinking about those things by myself, like, you know, on my commute somewhere, I thought it would be nice to talk to you about them. Oh my gosh. I love that. I am so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about this stuff too. It, gosh, it reminds me of when I was living in DC with a really good friend from Peace Corps. Um, I was working for the federal government at the time and she was a grad student and working for a think tank. And we would come home from work or seeing friends or being out and I almost feel like we would like draw the blinds and 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 come in and whisper to each other like, I had a moderate thought, um, <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily about our politics, although it it could have been. Yeah, it was yeah. more about we were just people who like sat in places where we could see things from a lot of different perspectives, yeah. and we didn't always feel surrounded by or that there were people who kind of heard those perspectives and said like yeah I see the value in these different sides it was a little bit more of a you know there's there's like a correct side or there's like a correct narrative and so it was really nice to to have her to talk to about it and yeah I'm glad to talk to you about this stuff this week I love that. And that, again, that's one of those things that give me hope because there is, you know, there are people in government who can see different sides and um, have moderate thoughts. And um, yeah, so that that actually gives me a lot of hope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that kind of ties into something that I've been thinking about this week. um, Now that my industry has newly become like you know, tech startups. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of the company Coinbase. Um, I have not. I'm going to Google them right now while you tell me what you read about them this week. Yeah. So Coinbase is a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, and I honestly, like, I don't know too much about them um, other than that that's what they are. And I assume that they are like a relatively, you know, large company. Um, so Back in June, uh, Coinbase employees, they apparently, they staged a walkout because the CEO, Brian Armstrong, he refused to answer a question about Black Lives Matter during um, an internal session. Um, And then like he, I guess he just like addressed it afterwards, like in a tweet or something after pressure. Um, And so, yeah, so that happened over the summer. And then... Um, I think this week or last weekend, he wrote an email um, to Coinbase staff and he like wrote a blog about how now in Coinbase, like they, you know, employees are not allowed to have political conversations. Um, And he said that anyone who is basically uncomfortable with that 
can leave. And he like offered, you know, quote unquote, generous exit packages um, and basically said, like, if you're not comfortable with not being able to talk politics in the workplace, then like this isn't the place for you. So a lot of things kind of freaked me out about that. Um, Like, A, I mean, I don't know, how disingenuous is it for a company whose literal like mission statement is to create an open, inclusive financial system for the world, right? Um, And they like, they keep like repeating, you know, the phrase like economic freedom and equality of opportunity and like, if you can't live that out in just like a basic level where there is um, a culture in your company that is welcoming of people from different backgrounds and different, you know, thought uh, who have different thoughts and like things that are happening in the world um, affect in, in just like a real tangible way every day. Like if you can't talk about those things, like what kind of a financial system is being created? Um, I don't know. Just like things were just like kind of, it was, I don't know. It scared me just a little bit. So some of the wording from this like blog, this email that he wrote. So he um, was like, we've seen what internal strife at companies like Google and Facebook can do to productivity. And there are many smaller companies who have had their own challenges here. Challenges, come on. Um, I believe most employees don't want to work in these divisive environments. They want to work on a winning team that is united and making progress towards an important mission. They want to be respected at work, have a welcoming environment where they can contribute and have growth opportunities. They want the workplace to be a refuge from the division that is increasingly present in the world. (sighs) I feel like that is, oh my gosh, I'm going to like say something mean, but like those are like literally the words of like every white man that's ever been like personally victimized for being a white man who like doesn't get it ever. Yeah. Okay. Also, you think that the thing that motivates all humans in the world is to be on like a winning team? Like I could have picked out so many things from that, but like, like this is like, I don't know, this like, this competitive nature that everyone out here is trying to be like the best and have picked like the best. Like, no, your employees work for you because you pay them the like that like nice nice tech money (laughs) like not because they think that you're gonna be like the winner um but that's that's totally or that's like almost beside the point I am more surprised than I should be um because I think that there have been probably too many leaders who have said like this isn't political or I don't want things to be political the the refrain that I keep in in my mind often is like the personal is political. Like if this affects you personally, then, um, then you probably are political about it. If you're not, then you might say, I don't want to get political about it. And that, that's like a range of issues. Like that's not, that's not even picking an issue, right? Like if it, if it affects you and you think that things need to be changed at a systematic level, then it's politics. If it doesn't, then you probably don't want it or you don't want things to change. Um, But so while you were describing that, I 
Googled the Hatch Act, which, because I was previously a federal employee, um, recalled that there were kind of restrictions on how we could talk about politics or sort of be politically active. And in comparison to what this um, this CEO sort of wants for his company, I feel like the the government is very sort of just responsible about political activity at work. Um, some of the the highlights are um, things you can do as a federal employee are express your opinion about political issues, express That's your fun. opinion about partisan groups or candidates in partisan elections okay. while not at work or using official authority, which totally makes sense. Um, you can be active and hold office in partisan groups. You can attend fundraisers. Um, you can contribute money. You can assist in don't voter registration. Um, you can't be a candidate in partisan elections. Um, mm. So that is, it's one of those, like if you ever see somebody who was like working for the government, but then they quit in order to run, like that's why. Mm-hmm. Um, but then some of the other things you can't do, which which like honestly, this kind of makes sense. I could see I could see this being a rule in like a non-government agency, which is you can't engage in political activity while on duty or in the workplace, which includes wearing, displaying, or distributing partisan materials, performing campaign-related chores, making political contributions, or emailing or using social media to engage in political activity. You yeah. know, like well, I think the employers probably have a hard time restricting their employees' use of social media while at work. I can see that. I can see like, okay, you're not like, you should be doing your job while you're at work. But part of doing your job is like connecting with your, with like other coworkers. And that often includes like talking about politics in general, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I feel like the idea that, um, you don't talk about politics or things about politics. Like how quickly does that turn into, you just can't talk about your values. Right. right? And like, that is like, I don't think anybody, even he would sort of agree with that, but I don't know that he would be able to say like, well, here's the line. Like, this is what I mean when I talk about politics. That's why I actually really appreciate and out of necessity this um this government hatch act description that i found because it's like okay you can't wear display or distribute partisan materials at work sure that totally makes sense i am like very okay with that (laughs) yeah Yeah. and it's like sure like what values or right like what are gonna what things that are values are you going to label as political when they are against or they're different from your values and what values are you going to be protected? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are you going to be protecting? Right. Yeah, um, exactly. I feel like, I mean, I, we've kind of mentioned this, but like we are both like single women, no children, like not, you know, providing for families, but um, one kind of demographic that whose needs are often not considered in all sorts of policies that companies make are like moms whether it's Mm -hmm. they're pregnant or breastfeeding or have young kids or older kids or whatever um they're they're a demographic who aren't necessarily thought about um and and I'm just thinking like this this company this type of leadership does not necessarily like I don't know if I would feel comfortable as say 
you know, maybe I'm one of a few women who's pregnant who needs um, like additional services, right? Maybe you need space for pumping or, or whatever it is that you need. Do you feel comfortable kind of bringing it up or like talking to the people around you? Or are you going to feel like there's some, maybe that like for some reason, maybe there is some political connection. Maybe it's about, um, you know, right now there is a push for like broader parental leave, for example, right? Like maybe that's the thing you're talking about and it's because it directly affects you as a, you know, pregnant woman or, or really it should affect any parents. Um, but these things so often fall to women. Um, like how are, are you, can you talk about that, right? Can you talk about the importance of, of leave when you could technically connect it to politics? Yeah, totally, totally. One of the things um, that's, that's been on my mind and yeah. in a, like a, there's not really a right answer, um, mostly no specific group. I think has the right answer, which is kind of, which is really the problem is, is the fires in, um, in California and Oregon kind of all over the West. So I'll give my precursor. So I do have a a degree in natural resource management from Cal Poly and I did pretty extensively study forestry as um, an undergrad and I welcome all of my classmates to correct anything that I am saying wrong, because um, I know that they, many of them are actually like actively working in um, managing forests and working in um, for fire departments and, and kind of everything in California. But the, the thing that bothers me is, so when I was in school and we were learning about like really like holistic management of forests or any type of land. It was really pointed out, and I think that this is important, that you're not managing plants or animals. Mm. You're managing people and people's Mm -hmm. decisions. And so that means stakeholder engagement is this like really important part, right? Whether it's landowners or landowners next door, like neighbors or – Maybe there's water on your land and there's people who use it downstream. Maybe there are um, uh, kind of like historical, like historically used sacred spaces for native populations on your, on or near your land. Like there are so many different stakeholders in, in land. And it was just very clear from the education and the experience I had how important it was to sort of like understand all your stakeholders needs. So that's like the first part. The second part is that people working both in the fire and forestry businesses, for lack of a better description, industries on the West Coast, all of them knew 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that the forests were not being managed in a healthy way. Mm. That old policies that pushed suppression of fire that limited logging in certain areas, limited control burns in certain areas, were not creating healthy forests. That was like very, very clear. Um, And as part of our lab time in school, we went out and saw these forests that had burned, like the really, really hot fires that they're talking about now that just Mm -hmm. absolutely destroy everything. And it takes 
years after a fire for anything to come back, even with a ton of um, management and, and work and planting, etc. And so I feel like there, there's like a lot of things that are happening right now. Like there's this, there's this history, there's the, there, there's so many histories, right? There is the, the history of like Native American populations who did manage the forest through control burns and, you know, kind of using different areas for different purposes. And so it was managed then. So first of all, the idea that there was ever like this wild forest that was untouched was just like ridiculous. Um, So that's like one history. And then there was the history of logging on the West Coast that was really just detrimental to the forest and that was a true Mm -hmm. thing that happened and there was just entire forests that were cut down it causes erosion that's bad for the streams and fish and then there were environmental policies that came in and said we can't just over log and those policies especially because they were like the first in the world in California and then the U.S. um, so kind of the first chance to get it right were very conservative on the side of fire suppression as we've kind of heard Mm -hmm. about now And so there's obviously this, there are policies, there is this like legislative requirement of of the type of permits and process you need to go through in order to cut trees or manage forests or do control burns that's not working anymore, right? And so, so today, like in 2020, you have these like different sides talking about it in different ways, right? You have environmental activists pointing out climate change and how the increased heat from the fires is due to climate change. And like, there's Mm -hmm. truth to that. And then there are people within the forestry sector and fire fighting sector who are saying it's because we weren't managing it for a long time. Right. And then there are, which, and not that these people weren't kind of out there with voices before, but I think their voices are being listened to more now, which is amazing there are native populations who are experts in fire management and forest management and kind of understanding how historically native populations have managed fire saying, here's how our communities used to do it. Like, here's what we can teach you. Here is what we understand about how the forest can be managed better. And hypothetically, all of those people could even come to some agreement about what they should do but they still have to change the like legislative requirement, especially yeah. because, and, and if you're reading anything, you know this, that so much of the land, the forest land in California and just the entire Western side of the United States is federal land. And so it's not the California policies that need to change. It's federal policies that need to change. And what's hard is you just have these different sides that kind of still blame each other for what happened. Like, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, right? You have environmentalists who assume that foresters just want to clear cut everything and have zero sort of respect for um, endangered species or like native populations who have a historic relationship with the land there and kind of what they would want. There's this like assumption that the the people working in forestry don't want that. And then on the forestry side or the, even the fire management side, you have an assumption that, well, all the environmentalists want is to save the endangered species and it's gotten so bad, they clearly don't even care about people anymore, right? Like they're willing to let the fires burn or they're willing to let the forests burn because they 
they were so worried about cutting down trees in order to hurt animals that they ended up hurting people. Mm -hmm. And there's just clearly such a need for a reevaluation of what are our policies, what are our values, and, and how do we almost like rank them and, and not rank in a, like this part doesn't matter, but like at the end of the day, human life matters. (laughs) And so on the West coast, from what we can see about, you know, some of the fires rolled through really unhealthy forests. And part of the reason why they were so hot was because the forest was very poorly managed. And I want to be clear, it wasn't poorly managed because the people were bad at managing forests. It's because the policies limit how you can manage the forest. Um, And then on the other hand, it's literally hotter. It's like the temperature is hotter. Things are drier. Climate change has made hotter fires. And so how do we like have a conversation about what is best for like the future of humanity on in the Western United States? And can we develop new policies around that instead of just blaming each other for what one or another group did or did not do yeah. now right. or 30 years ago? <laughs> right. Um, there's so, yeah, so much you said that I like, yeah, that I just like wanted to, to address, but like, to your point about, um, like, it's not about managing the resource per se. It's not like managing the trees, whatever it's, it's really the people. Um, and I loved all the, the, like the connections that you made between different policies affecting different stakeholders and how, um, yeah, how that sort of all comes together in this perfect storm that makes this a crisis that we like can't seem to figure out a way out of. Um, and the thing about policies, I think sometimes the word policies feels a little bit like dry or something, but like at the end of the day, policies come from people sort of like fighting for it, right? Like it's there, it's, it's, like political, it's like super political. And it's, I, I almost imagine like, you know, like different parties, like in a ring and just like fighting out to come up with this, like this, you know, whatever law that then impacts so many people and like so many species. Right. And, and all these things. Um, I, I was also, you know, thinking about, as I was thinking about policies and, and the fires out in California, right, about, as you said, right, like, it's, it's not necessarily just about, um, yeah, just about the fires or just about the land. It's, it's like, really about the people that it's affecting. Um, and, like, the housing laws, right, in California, I guess, where you are um, allowed to build in really high-risk areas, and people build out there, like, almost knowing right? The state of, um, yeah, the state of the fires that, that continue to happen every year and continue to get worse every year, right? Um, and so there's like this balance between, you know, building affordable housing in a, in, in a state that where um, housing is becoming unmanageable um, and then the safety of people, right? And then in between are the local politicians who are feeling like, they have to, you know, sometimes like go against what they maybe think is wise because that's like the thing that's going to get them votes or whatever. Because I feel like it's 
so messy. And I, I just, I don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like, and this is one of those, you know, would love to do my own stakeholder research and, and find out more about this, but the one sort of hope I would say that I have is, so when I was growing up in California, lived in Northern California, not the Bay area, but in the mountains, like we had fires, like we had the big fires because we lived in the mountains. Like that's where, that's where the big fires are. Um, and there'd be big fires in, (laughs) in LA, but again, not like LA, the city, like the mountains around LA. Um, and those were where kind of the big fires were recently they've been in the Bay area. So like directly affecting Mm -hmm. kind Mm -hmm. of the, the high density area, which is a significant voting block for California. Like when Mm -hmm. you look at, um, the, the politics of Californians and you can kind of split it up by County, um, you know, San Francisco Bay area does have a very high concentration of Democrats. Like it's just always voted Democrat, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of, it's, it's almost a joke how California is, you know, it's just so blue. It's just, yeah, and that's not yeah. true of like the whole state. It's just, it's right. always been true of, of, um, the, the Bay area and, and that sort of density of population and, and the influence it has. But I do hope and again, it's it's devastating that there would have to be any loss in order to create change. But I do yeah. hope that as people who live in that area who haven't necessarily been directly affected by wildfires now are, right? Kind of year after year, they have become one of the new centers to be affected by fire. Um, maybe that will change some policies just because there are different populations who are affected, who are negatively affected um, and who can, can think about it. Right. One of the, um, the things that people you know, back home were talking about one of the, the negative impacts from the fires. And this is just really interesting is that um, more and more insurance companies aren't providing fire insurance or they're right. making it so expensive that you can't, yeah kind of keep it on but in order to have a mortgage in many of these areas you have to have fire insurance and so it's it's like how do you deal with that right like this is clearly the opportunity and the need for state if not federal level government to come in and say here's how we're going to manage this right Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of different things and I would love to hear input from people working in um, kind of the the fire management space about what the best policy route here is, but yeah. you know people need homes and people need to be able to stay in their homes and the value of they need to keep the value of their homes, um, and and how do you manage that right? And so mm-hmm. it's been really sad to sort of see what's happening and the level of destruction, but it does also feel a little bit like the the state of California at least if not the whole kind of western side of the country is getting to a tipping point where yeah it's no longer about your right or I'm right or like this history but we all need some new skills and some new policies and a new strategy to to look into the future and and sort of protect um you know the 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 populations that are you know in this area Right. And 
I think it's also kind of a wake up call because I mean, fires on the West coast, like it's something that like the world has never seen, but like the other effects of poor management of resources and, you know, climate change is like, has affected different parts of the world and that, you know, have pushed people out of their homes. And um, I think in some ways, like, the United States is finally understanding what it means to like be a climate refugee. Um, And hopefully, you know, that will also, yeah, make people a little bit more like empathetic to, to what is happening in other parts of the world as well. Um, Something, you know, when you were talking about like stakeholder management and how that's like, that's really That's really the key. That's really the crux of, you know, solving issues that um, solving issues in a a way that is um, kind of like sustainable and responsible. And I was thinking about um, so, again, like being on the the Eastern Hemisphere, something that I've been thinking about. And I was trying to see if this has been getting reported on um, in the U.S. and it doesn't seem like it, but. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but have you heard about like what's happening with like the Fukushima power plant? No. What the Japanese government is trying to do right now. So do you remember the the power plant, the nuclear power plant fiasco disaster um, back in 2011? Yes. Uh, Bad tsunami flooded it. Bad things happen. Right. Exactly. In a nutshell. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, now, right, nine years later, they, the, so the Tokyo Electric Power Company, TAPCO, um, I guess they've been, they're the ones who own that power plant um, and they've been trying to like manage all of the nuclear waste that is like coming from the plant. And to do that, I guess, I don't, I don't know the science behind it and I don't think I'm, I'm getting this exactly right, but basically as a result of trying to manage that um, disaster, it's now created over a million tons of contaminated water and they've been crazy, right? And they've been holding it in these like, in these, um, in these like cells, I guess, but now they're running out of land on which to contain those cells. And so basically what they decided with the Japanese government is to start releasing that contaminated water into the ocean, over a million tons of contaminated water. And, um, you know, their kind of reasoning is that they're going to release it a little by little. And then the thing, the parts that are harmful are just going to evaporate. And so therefore it's not going to affect it's not going to affect anything. Um, it's sort of the way that they were framing it. And I don't know, we can edit this out because it might be kind of visceral, but like in my head, when I first read that, I'm like, it's not like when you have to go to the bathroom really badly. And so you like, you know, like you like start peeing a little bit and then you wait for it to evaporate. Like, that's like, that's the imagery that I got. And I'm like, not the way it works. Like, what? Um, oh and it came out that like, 
um, apparently they, you know, were misreporting on just how safe, like quote unquote safe the the, the treated water was. And so like as of 2019, apparently um, they found that actually three quarters of the water that was treated was not actually safe for human health. And so I don't know, like that's those kinds of decisions feel like to me something that should be engaging the international community. It's not, it's, I don't, I don't know how much a million tons means like in the grand scheme of things, but like, it sounds like a lot to me, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they've been getting a little bit of pushback, I think also because they're not, they haven't considered any of the other stakeholders, right? Like the local fishing communities who are going to, their livelihoods are going to be impacted, right? Like neighboring countries um, whose water rights are also going to be impacted, right? And the excuse was, well, it's COVID. And so there just like hasn't been time and we just like can't really wait to, to talk to the affected communities. And so um, they made the decision, I guess, not long ago to, to start doing that, to start releasing that contaminated water into, into the ocean. Um, it, it's so interesting and I can see why for a lot of different reasons governments sort of do this but like to be clear there is a national law that governs air rights and water rights and um, they will be sued if the water rights of their yeah. neighbors are affected cool. like just to yeah. be clear this is not like oops you know, yeah, this had right. negative impacts to climate. Like they're probably, like you said, there probably actually are direct impacts on, um, on, um, the neighboring, like, and, and fishing communities and, but like they could, the government could get sued by, mm-hmm. um, fishermen in the area. Like they could all come together and, and sue them. Mm-hmm. So not that I think that suing is the answer to everything, although like, you know, we're sitting in the U.S. This is a very litigious country, and so it's often the first mm-hmm. thing I jump to. But it's also like there are consequences. Yeah. Um, you can't just and also do like yeah, but like also like what is what is litigation at the end of the day going to do when the damage is already done? Right? Like right. what amount? There's like there's no turning back, and it yeah. it yeah it scares me a little bit, just the amount of like what the, the, the calculation between like, you know, it becoming financially unsustainable for a company to hold the water on land. And so therefore like, what, I I don't know, go buy a piece of land. Some, you know, like you can't, you can't outsource the, the, you know, um, the responsibility of your failures on on the rest of the world for generations to come. Yeah. You just can't. And I also, I mean, you know, I, I, I'll have to kind of read into this because I actually think this is really interesting. I'm always really interested in like who is responsible, who should be responsible, and kind of what incentives are there. Because this kind yeah. of reminded me of like two pieces of it. Like one, if – there is sort of a local government or power plant owner or local municipality or, or, or whatever who's being held responsible for this. Like, is the whole government, is like the federal government of Japan saying like, here's 
here's how we're going to deal with this. Because they're at a certain level, especially when it comes to natural disasters, like you got to move up a level. Like we cannot all individually, in the US, for example, individual states cannot yeah. even be responsible for, for managing things like fires and the costs associated with them. Um, and so that's kind of my first question. And then on the second hand, and this kind of like brings us, brings us back to the beginning, um, with your comment that they've, you know, said we don't really have any other options and this is more than we thought. I just, I often think about what are the incentives out there for technologies that address climate change and this may or may not have an impact on climate change. Um, there is, you know, certainly an, an argument, although you can't tie it to any one storm, but that an increase in tropical storms and the devastation of them is very connected to climate change. Um, yeah. But but what are the incentives out there to get these these tech bros? These are these are smart people who like to you know who are competitive and like to problem solve. Where are the incentives for those people to? create huge companies and amazing new technologies that I don't know use up that waste right to do something right or or there's been a lot of talk about um carbon capture and and mm -hmm. I, there are a lot of people working on that I, I, I don't mean to say that there's no technologies there but like it, it is very clear that the the money and the incentives are not quite as aligned as they should be, right? Which is why we're trying to get a lot of global policies. But but yeah, just everything you said there about that it is amazing that um, in in a moment where the world is distracted, right? You can say, well, this doesn't really matter. We'll get away with it. Whereas like, yeah. what if the incentives were turned and it was like, Hey, who can find someone to something to useful to do with this byproduct? I heard, you know, Jason Reynolds talking about how to use our imagination for the creation of a society that is like good and like not not necessarily for evil, right? Sarah, like have if you were to imagine a world, yeah, imagine a world where you didn't really have to like think about practical things to be implemented um, and just like imagine a better world um, what is like yeah what is like one thing that that comes to mind for you so the thing that comes to mind is language mm. and how like so I, I love to travel did a lot of travel for work um, have, have traveled a lot personally and just love seeing how different people live their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it is important. Um, I think it gives perspective and I just think that, you know, there, there's something you can learn from everyone and, and mm -hmm. I just really love traveling, but the mm -hmm. thing that comes to mind in this sort of world where, um, things can be, can work better is, um, and, and this is like, you know, it could be a technology solution, but I just wish that there was a way to more easily communicate across language barriers. And my thoughts about that are kind of twofold. One, just like literally make it easier, right? It doesn't matter what language you uh, you speak at home, you speak with your parents, you speak at school, you can travel and and learn new things and go to new places and learn that language. 
The other side of it is just sort of the acknowledgement um, and, and, you know, looking at this as sort of correcting some of the ways that the world has been run and, and giving more voice to populations whose voice hasn't mattered is there's so many populations who speak languages that most people have never even heard of. And most of those people, because of where they live, also learned English or French or Portuguese or Spanish or or whatever. Um, But it would just be really cool and such a gift back of individual humanity and value to say, speak whatever language you want. Like there are way other easier ways to communicate. Like you don't have to learn English in order to, to, to make something of yourself, right. In order to succeed in business or, or whatever, or, or more and more commonly, you don't have to learn Mandarin in order to sort of make something of yourself and access trade. But like the language that you speak with your family and your community is is valued and beautiful and we should hear more of it um and it would just be cool for there to be a way that people can kind of lean into that and um not be sort of limited because of it Mm. I love that I think that kind of like you know ties into something that I like had been thinking about for for a long time and you know every time I say this out loud everyone's like but how would that work practically and I'm like I don't know (laughs) but I mean like having open borders like not having these like artificial lines that say well this is these people are our own and we will take care of you and those outside of this line like you don't belong here like I don't know I just Um, I feel like at this point, right, like usually like typically our actions, it has the, our actions here or like there in the U S right. Or here in Korea, our actions have the potential to impact people in, you know, like 20,000 miles away, right. Both in a positive or a negative way. Um, and you know, in the context of everything that we've been talking about today, it's, yeah, it, it, you know, as we were talking about with the fires, right, like how um, climate change and policies um, have created these situations where places are unlivable. So that's been happening all over the world. Um, You know, I, I feel like we can't really be territorial anymore because our actions literally impact every corner of the world, right? And, you know, people, when they feel like they need to move, right, they move and they're welcomed into other parts of the world. And, um, you know, maybe that tech solution you were talking about that would, you know, allow everyone to communicate um, <laughs> and you know, whatnot would, would also help with that. Right. And maybe there will be a system of currency and exchange that's not created by, you know, people like Coinbase CEO, but that are created by people whose lives are actually being affected. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and maybe things will be, stop being about scale and productivity and, you know, whatnot, but there will be a recentering of 
um, of things that are local and community-based that becomes the key to like thriving. Um, yeah. I don't know. But, I, I like this. It's such a more positive way to end a discussion about <laughs> the things that are going on that are just sort of hard to process um, or hard to see the how decisions are being made. And yeah, I, I think that it's also just like a really healthy practice to say, how could things be better? Right. And then acknowledge um, that everything in this world is made up. And so we can make up new yeah. things. Right? Like we can, yeah. we can make up new ways of living and new technologies. And even in yeah. weeks or moments where it feels nearly impossible, um, it's been done before by literally every generation yeah. before us. And so like what Absolutely. says that, who says that these seemingly, you know, far off ideas that we have can't be reality if we um, sort of pursue them as such. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. Check us out on Instagram at F-I-N-G Ethical and on our website at songandsarah.com. We'd love to hear from you. What industries or systems do you have questions about? How are you making ethical decisions in everyday life? 2020 is hard and we would love to hear about how it's going for you. Thanks.